Well, good morning and welcome. We're coming through there. Um, I'm Jeremy. I'm one of the leaders here at church, and um, it's great you can be with us in our second week on the Habits of Grace series as we kind of get ready for 20 of our people to head over and start a new gospel work over in Burwood. As I said last week, it's the best reason for a church to lose 20 people in one go, and so we're looking forward to that. As well, next week, after our service, we're going to hang out in the park together to farewell our crew that are heading over, so we'd love for you to join us in doing that. Uh, but the first habit that we're looking at over this series is the habit of stewardship, the habit, as, as Rob mentioned before, of using our finances in a way that demonstrates that we believe they belong to God and we're managing them on His behalf rather than on our own. And we also kind of opened the idea last week that every transaction, no matter how small, is a transaction of the heart, that Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So every time you make a small purchase, it's not just about getting something or it's not just financial. There is something going on in the heart. And so to kick off this week as we think about a little bit deeper about stewardship and about the call to use our finances to advance the gospel story, I wanted to look at one thing which is called impulse buying. Now years and years ago, there was only one section in the supermarket that was caught, they never labeled it this, but it was everyone who you know, knew anything about supermarkets knew that this section at the front near the counter was called the impulse items section. The more cynical term for it was called the pester power section. And the reason it worked was people would come to the grocery store to do their one big shop for the week and you brought cash. Remember cash? Everyone had cash. And so you'd bring a stack of cash to get all your groceries for the week. So you already had money on you. And when you got to the front of the store and you had your kids with you and you were exhausted and you'd barely made it to the counter alive and you finally stagger across there and get the last items through, there would be this little section that was at the right height for little eyes and hands and it was full of sweets and chocolates and all this kind of stuff. And the theory behind it was to get parents when their resistance is just paper thin. They're tired, the kids are pestering, they're nearly out of the store, you're almost home, you want to get there, and then the kid says, can I get one of these? And they're just like, I have nothing left. Yes, sure, fine, we'll get it. But there was only really a very small number of items that you could buy on impulse, because the idea is an impulse item is something that you don't really need, but you've kind of got enough money to get it, so you just get it. But there was only a small number of things that you could do, especially when you had cash. Even just think about this, even in the early 90s, if, you, if it was an extremely hot day, it's like 40 degrees, and you walk past a shop and you see just a, a drink uh, fridge, and you wanted a drink, but you didn't have cash on you, you would have to go home and think, can I really be bothered going back out to buy the drink or whatever? Even buying like a $2 can of drink had like a cooling off period. When it was a cash economy, there was a slowness to purchasing things that meant there was just a little bit more time to reflect. Impulse items are meant to get you before you hit the reflection process. You feel a thing, you want a thing, you get a thing. But now, you can buy almost anything on impulse. Things are geared up for what they call frictionless spending. That is to make you feel a strong sense that you want a thing and to make sure there are as few barriers in the way for you getting that thing. That there are as few barriers as there, as there can possibly be from going from wanting a thing to actually getting a thing. There's no things to stop you or slow you down along the way. PayPass or in-app purchasing or subscription services or online shopping or afterpay mean that you can get something as soon as you want it. 
The in-app purchase already has your credit card details, so you don't even have to go through the conscious process of saying, do I really want this as you're typing in all the digits again? It's already done for you. It's two clicks and you're there. Now, as I mentioned this last week, our small habits reinforce powerful beliefs. Transactions are transactions of the heart. And the fact that we buy so many things on impulse, I think, is having an impact on our soul. And there are two beliefs that I floated last week that I think particularly come across in impulse buying. And the first one is this, the idea of individualism, that I'm a self-ruling being. I'm master of my domain. In our purchase, I mean, uh, impulse buying builds in us that sense that I'm master of my domain. As soon as I want a thing, I get a thing. I don't wait. I'm not a waiter. If I want something, I have it, and I have it now. And it's interesting that this is having the impact, I think, of making us more irritable as people. We don't like waiting. We switch aisles in the supermarket. We switch lanes in traffic. I honk, I beep, I abuse, I don't wait because I'm a self-ruling being and I expect things now. I think part of this comes from the way that we purchase. The second belief that I think that it builds in us is the belief that I need to feel good all the time. As soon as I feel funny or down or bad or just dissonant, I can buy something and I feel better instantly. We get stuff all the time and it builds in us this belief that I need to feel good all the time. And the crazy thing about this is Many people don't even realize that they have this belief until they get into the psychologist's office and they're trying to unpack it. Cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance commitment therapy are all modern ways of trying to deal with the issue that you don't need to feel good all the time. But the way that we purchase is often reinforcing that. Our spending is not isolated from the rest of our lives. It is building powerful beliefs in us. And if you are here and a follower of Jesus, your biggest concern shouldn't just be that this is affecting your human flourishing, but actually these beliefs are anti-gospel. These are not the things that we believe are true about reality. As followers of Jesus, we are called to let the truth of God shape our lives and our priorities. If we understand the grace of God, how much Jesus has done for us in shedding his blood for us and setting us free from sin and death, our desire is to live lives that reflect that reality. We do not look to be good stewards in order to receive God's love. That is not grace. We look to be good stewards because God has already loved us. What we do is meant to be an outworking of what we believe. And if we believe that God is at the center of the universe, that He is good and merciful and kind, and He has poured out His grace toward us in Jesus, then everything in life must reflect that, including the way that we spend our money, including the way that we steward our money. And so as we look at at 1 Chronicles 29, a passage that you might not have reflected on deeply before, we're going to see what it is that the Bible lays out is true about who we are before God and how that impacts the way that we look at things like our finances. Let's pray. Father, you are the author of life. In sin we were dead and yet you have made us alive in Christ. You have ransomed us from the grave. You have taken away the debt that held us captive to the fires of hell. And the blood of Christ has washed us and made us white as snow. We are free in Jesus. May we not submit again to a yoke of slavery. May your spirit give us power to live as free children of grace. May your spirit give us the mind of Christ and capture every rebel thought and desire and conquer it for Christ.
As we look to be good stewards, may we not live from fear or guilt, but in the freedom and joy of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may all of this be for your glory. Amen. Well, the, the passage that Rob read out before is in a particular part of the gospel story. And if you're with us in the last part of last year, we went through the entire story of the Bible together. And so if you were with us, you'll know that David, King David, was ruling at a time that was probably Israel's, not probably, it was Israel's peak. They had peace on every side, all their enemies had been pushed back. It was the largest, just about, between David and Solomon, that Israel was ever going to be in terms of its territory. It was prosperous, it was good, it was the peak of their empire. How many people look in terms of Australia at the Howard years, when everything was great and dandy and fine. Well, some, the, the Israelites would have looked back on these years with that kind of you know, rose-colored glasses. They were like, this was when everything was good. And David knew that the next step in terms of them, in terms of the whole gospel story, because it is one story that fits together, David knew that the next step was to build the temple. And so he said to Nathan the prophet, who was a man of God, who was his counselor, he said to him, look, I think it's time to build the temple. Nathan's like, I think that's a great idea too. They, they start to make preparations for it. When God intervenes and says, stop, David, you won't build a temple for me. It's going to be your son to do it. In fact, I'm going to make provision for you. And David says, God, whatever you say. And so David knows that he's not going to be alive to see the temple built. That legacy is going to be passed to his son. And so because of that, he decides that he's going to take an offering to build this thing. He's going to make it as easy as possible for his son to carry out the next step in the gospel story. He wants to put all his efforts towards that. And so he decides to get all of Israel together, their leaders and representatives and most of the people, and brings them together in their capital, and he creates a gathering that goes for two days. Now, if you feel like our gatherings go for too long, just have a little bit of a heart for the people of Israel here. This is two days. It's a jamboree they're getting together for. And David does this because he's going to take an offering, and he kicks off the proceedings in 1 Chronicles 29.1 by saying this. It says, And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I've provided for the house of my God so far as I was able, the gold for the things of God, gold, the silver for the things of silver, the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, and all sorts of precious stones and marble. David is doing this, we're told in that first sentence, because Solomon is young and he's inexperienced. He's the next generation. He knows that he's too young to manage this kind of thing. And so David has, at the end of his life, in mind the future direction of the kingdom, the next step in the gospel story. And because he's coming to the end of his life, it's natural, and it often is the case, that as we come towards the end of our lives, as we start to reckon with death, we start to think about the things that really matter, about the things that are going to matter long after we are forgotten and gone and buried. And David is thinking about these things, and because of this, he's like, right, what I want to do is I want to gather up a fund so that we can fulfill the next step of the gospel story, so I can make it as easy as possible for Solomon to do his bit, because he is young and inexperienced. He wants to advance the cause of the gospel going forward. And he wants to, wants to see this temple built, because the temple in the story of the gospel is a massive thing. 
Have you ever reflected on that? The temple was where the sacrifice for sin was made annually on the Day of Atonement. This was a reminder to Israel that sin hadn't yet been dealt with because they did it year on year on year. It was a reminder that one day, God who has written all these blank checks is going to cash them. He's going to deal with sin fully and finally and completely. It was a foreshadowing of the Lamb of God, the one who would take away the sins of the world. It was a foreshadowing of the presence of God among his people, something that we take for granted now, knowing that every believer has the Spirit of God dwelling in them. The temple was foreshadowing the, sh- the church. We're told in the New Testament that we, the people of God, are being built together into the temple of God. That is, this is how God will demonstrate his purposes to people all over the world through his church. It even foreshadowed Jesus himself. When Jesus walked on earth in his ministry, he said, destroy this temple, talking about his own body. He says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. The temple foreshadowed all of these things, and so David desperately wants to do everything he can to make it happen. He wants to be part of the next phase of the gospel story. See, the gospel story is the story that we live in. If you're a follower of Jesus, you believe that that is the story of your life that you are fully and completely a part of. It's the story of how God created the world, how his creation rejected him, And yet how he made a way back to him as he gathered a people back to himself, as he sent Jesus to die for their sin and to take away the debt of sin and death and to bring people back to him and that he will keep doing this and drawing people to himself until he is a people from every tribe, nation and tongue gathered before the throne at the end of days. That is the gospel story. And David understood what was next in this story for his part and he fully invested in it. As one commentator has said, God calls every generation to invest in the cause of advancing the gospel for the next generation. God calls every generation to invest in the cause of the gospel for the next generation. Do you realize that we are meeting here in this building because almost a hundred years ago, one man had that kind of vision for his life. This building was built by a person who used their own personal funds We wanted to create a building where the people of God could gather. If you've seen it out the front, it says, till he comes. Some people even visit, you know, week to week who who used to live in Balmain, and they'll come and they'll say, they used to call this the till he comes building, because out the front it has this big thing, because the guy who created it wanted this to be a, a place where Christians would gather until Jesus returned. Legally, that wasn't a, you know, a legally binding time period, so it had to be a hundred year lease. Uh, But he wanted it to be that until Jesus returned. He had a vision for advancing the cause of the gospel for the next generation. And the reason we're here is because of that. Even when the, the church that was gathered here died out in 2012, that was when we got a tap on the shoulder to say, would you start a new gospel work in here? Because there's this building, a tool that could be used by the people of God to advance the cause of the gospel for the next generation. And now this little church is planning on another campus in Burwood where that same thing, God willing, will happen again. Because women and men had a vision, not just for their own time, but how to advance the cause of the gospel for the next generation and the one after and the one after. God calls every generation. Which means then that it's our turn as well. Even if you are here and only 18 and a follower of Jesus, it's time for you as an adult to turn around and think, how is it that I'm going to invest in the cause of the gospel for the next generation, just like the one above me did. 
We would guard the gospel and pass it on, unadulterated, to the next generation. I mean, wouldn't this be a witness to the world to see a community where the existing generation are committed to the good of the next generation and beyond? Isn't it the case that at the moment what we see is intergenerational warfare? I remember reading years ago on a book on punk and subculture, there was one quote from one of the early sort of godfathers of punk, and he said, every generation creates their own by destroying the one before. And that was certainly true of punk, but it's true of other movements too, isn't it? The way that you establish yourself is by destroying your parents' generation. It's warfare. It's generational warfare. Boomers think millennials are lazy and entitled and whiny. Millennials think boomers have destroyed the economy and everything else. Even cultural movements. Artists, neo-postmodernists, kind of rag on postmodernists. Second wave feminists are deplatformed by third wave feminists. It's just warfare, constant warfare. Every generation destroying the last. It should not be so in the church. David looks at his son Solomon and says, he's young and inexperienced and because of that, I want to do everything I can to put them on the best footing they can to advance the gospel story for the next generation. This is what stewards do. This is what those who are stewarding what they have for the cause of the kingdom do. It's how they think. They put the best of their mind and effort and finances to advancing the cause of the gospel for the next generation. And so that's the first point about stewardship from 1 Chronicles 29. But the next one is this. Stewards do this because they understand that everything belongs to God. Look at, what, look at what David actually prays here. In 1 Chronicles 29, 10 to 14, we read this. It will come up on the screen for you. It says, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to, thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. See, David just pours out praise for God here. I mean, he's, over, he's on a roll and he is over the top. After having kind of received the offering, so he's talked about this, about how young Solomon is, he's put his share in. Israel gives this lavish amount towards the temple, so they invest in it wholeheartedly. And then he just pours out praise to God. He says, God, you are the father of Israel. This God who is all-powerful and yet tender with his children and present with them. Not like an absentee father who gave his kids a bunch of stuff, wound up the world and left them to work it out. He's with Israel at every step of the way, making provision and protection. And so David says, praise you that you are our father. More than that. He says, you are, you are powerful beyond belief. He just goes on and on. He says, all the majesty is yours, the kingdom is yours, the power, the greatness, everything belongs to you. That is, God doesn't have to contest with his enemies. He doesn't have to fight with them or wage war with them. He can simply undo them the way a child might undo a hair ribbon. It is nothing to him. He is all powerful. He is in control of everything. 
from the far reaches of the galaxy to everything at our subatomic level. He is across it all because the greatness is all his. And so then it makes sense that David says, well, when we gave today, Lord, as he looks at this offering that's laid out, he says, look, we didn't do anything except just give back to you what is already yours. That's how a steward thinks. That's not my stuff. I didn't choose when to be born or how or what kind of gifts I would be born with. He says, God, it is all yours. Everything belongs to you. And he says, when we give, it's just a matter of us giving back to you what is already yours. You know, I've illustrated it like this before. It's every year at, our, at primary schools across Australia, they have a Father's Day and a Mother's Day stall. And what happens at these stalls is they get all kinds of like knickknacks that are roughly associated with whatever day it is. And the kids come in, they bring cash, and they buy things for, uh, you know, largely elevated prices, and, uh, and they bring them home for Father's Day. And so what happened last year was we give Asher sort of 10 bucks at the beginning of the day, and he goes to the store, and he buys something, and he brings it home. And he gives it on Father's Day. Now, I've got to be honest with you. If it was my $10, and it was, I probably wouldn't have spent it in that fashion. <laughs> but it's going to happen again this year, and I'm quite happy to do it, because this is the dynamic when it comes to the Father's Day presents. It's, it's not his cash. I, I give him the money. We give him the money. And he goes and buys something. Why not just go and buy myself something? Well, it's relational, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's a joy for him to be able to do it, for him to choose something. And he was so chuffed with it as well. And, and you know, like, I mean, the present is kind of irrelevant at that point, that the heart behind it is what matters so much. Because you might think, well, look, God, if it's all your stuff, why don't you just sort it all out? Cut out the middleman. That's a more efficient way to manage finances. But in terms of the glory of God, it's not. The way he models it is that he gives us stuff, transforms our heart by his gospel truth, and then we give back to him freely and willingly and joyfully. That's how he loves to see his people steward money for his kingdom. Stewards realize, look, it's not my stuff, it's just yours. I'm just I'm managing it according to your kingdom priorities. The things I get to enjoy are gifts from you. The things I give away are for the advancing of the kingdom. All of this is for you. So that's the second point. Stewards understand that everything is God's. And the third one is because of this, stewards give with joy. In 1 Chronicles 29, 17 to 24, we read this, the second half of David's prayer. He says, I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are at the present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may be able to keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God, and the assembly blessed the Lord and the God of their fathers. And they bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord, and then on the next day burnt offerings to the Lord, a thousand bulls, rams, and lambs. With their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel, they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. The theme that keeps coming through here is the idea of freely giving. In Hebrew, nadav. It comes up five times in this passage. It's free. 
No one's being compelled to do it. No one's being ground or cornered to do it. No one's being pester-powered into doing it. They're doing it freely. It's a free giving. And the language here is all this language of, of free and overflowing and abundant and all these things. It's not half-hearted. It's full of delight. They give freely and fully. This is a documentary a while back on a guy called Noam Chomsky who was talking... I actually don't know what the... I can't remember what the document... It was just about him. He just talked for a long time. But it was all right. It's worth watching. But there was one bit where he was talking quite idealistically about how, uh, how tax day... Is it tax day in the States? You pay everything at the end of the year or something? I'm looking to our U.S. corner. Is that... Okay, right. Okay, April 15, right? Uh, so rather than kind of the pay-as-you-go thing that we've got going on, there's one day where you kind of, you know, all the tax goes out or whatever. And he was saying... Um, Ideally, in a democracy that's really working well, where the, the elected representatives really represent the people and their interests, he said tax, tax day, or whatever it's called, should be like a day of celebration. He's like, yes, this is the day when the government's going to use all this stuff to buy what we need. Now, as far as I know, that's not how April 15 tends to go. I, I, I can't imagine why. But the idea behind it sounds incredibly naive that, that actually people would joyously give stuff away to the state because this is the thing that they want their stuff to be spent on. In the Bible here, that's exactly what's happening. Did that really happen? Israel was a nation state under God and they gave this away freely and you saw what they did at the end of it? They threw a party because this was exactly what they wanted to give for. It was a free offering. It wasn't extracted from them. They gave freely to this cause and rejoiced in it. They threw a party the whole next day and had sacrifices and free offerings and all of this because it came out of the conviction that they were stewards, that they were called to invest in the cause of the gospel for the next generation and because they knew that everything was God's and they were just giving back to Him. And more than that, if this sounds too naive because you're like, well, look, I mean, that's great for them then and it's great that that sort of happened in that time, but... Nowadays is different. The way we think about things is different. Well, I don't know if you noticed in there, but David prays for us in here, for you and for I. Look what it says in 1 Chronicles 29:18. It says, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever, forever, such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. He's saying here, look, the God who gives strength and power, he says, keep these purposes in, your, in the hearts of your people because the inclination is for them to go away from this. And if you read the latter prophets in the Old Testament, you'll see that this exact thing happens, that that heart doesn't remain with them always. God has to go to them and say to them, hey, you guys are robbing from me. How? When you don't give away your tithes and, and offerings. It didn't stay in the house, but David is praying that it would, that God would strengthen his people to know that they are stewards forever. And more than that, he seems to be drawing on another text in the Old Testament. The idea of thoughts and purposes, the language there is exactly the same as in Genesis 6-5 where it says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought, so that's thoughts and purposes phrase there, of his heart was only evil continually. Could it be that what David has in mind in Genesis 6-5 is that he knows that the heart of man is inclined toward evil. And so he says, with that in mind, God, would you use your mighty strength and power 
to draw your people's hearts and minds toward you forever. To think these kind of thoughts like they have this day when they're celebrating forever. David is not naive here about the human heart and he prays for the people of God and it was written down in Scripture for us that we might remember it. That we too would give to advance the cause of the gospel story for the next generation and the next and the next and the next forever until he comes. And so as we think about the next phase for us as a church, we want to think about moving onward. And so we mentioned last week a thing called the Onward Fund, which is above and beyond our just regular giving budget. And a few things that we think would be really helpful in advancing the cause of the gospel is we look to make more and stronger disciples of Jesus. And the first area that we're looking to give to is in in developing leaders. We know that God's plan A for saving the world is His church, and the main way His church advances is as He strengthens leadership to guard the gospel and pass it on to the next generation, to train more leaders who train more leaders, to make more disciples who make more disciples, and so on and so forth. And so we want to make sure that our leaders are as well supported as we possibly can. We want to make sure that they have the training that they need, that we can make book packs available to them so they can be as well equipped as possible to serve. Because the leaders here are an absolute blessing to this church. If, you, if you've joined this church and been involved in a missional community, you've probably been blessed by a bunch of missional community leaders who have loved and served that group with their whole heart. More than that, our volunteers volunteer hundreds or even thousands of hours. This year we're starting an internship program, and between them, the six of them, they're going to volunteer over 2,000 hours this year. That's a massive amount. Hopefully they've done the calculation on all of that and they know what's up. No, it's a free will offering for sure. But they, we really want to make sure that our leaders are as well supported as, they, as we possibly can. And so we'd love for you to think and pray through that. As well as this, it would be a miss to talk about advancing the gospel for the next generation without thinking about the kids that we've been hearing throughout our time, our city kids. They are literally the next generation. How many of you are here... Maybe a show of hands if you feel you know, comfortable to. How many of you here became a Christian so early in life that you don't actually remember a point where you didn't know Jesus? Is anyone? Yeah. Okay. Most of you, I'm guessing, were involved in some kind of kids' ministry like City Kids, where leaders dedicated their time to love and to serve you guys. We want to make sure that City Kids, that as we as we steward the gospel for the next generation, is in as good a position as it can. And so we'd like to put aside some money to take someone on part-time to be looking after that, to make sure the program is creative and, and, and biblical and deep so that we might be discipling the next generation and the next and the next and the next. And so that's the second thing in our own one fund. And the third one is for our building, our beautiful little persevering building with its funny little cherubs holding a sickle, some kind of a nod to socialism or something, we don't know what that's about, (laughs) with its sagging roof, with its sagging roof, you didn't notice it until now, did you? With its sagging roof in the men's toilet, with its funny little mezzanine level that you can't actually access and all that kind of stuff. This little, and its it's little desert garden out the front, as, as barren as Australia's ashes prospects, it's served us well, though, hasn't it? From day dot, in 2013, when we opened our doors for our first public meetings, it served us well, and it continues to, and it was because one person had a vision for the gospel for the next generation, and so now it's our turn. 
And the things that we want to work on are modest. It's the front garden, the back room, uh, and our signage that it would indicate that we now have two services. That would also be helpful. But all these little things, just to chip away, that this might be as welcoming a place as possible. So as people come and meet the people of God and hear the gospel news, that it might be as welcoming as possible. And so we want to invest in a small way in that. We haven't done much on the building over the last few years. Over the last three years, over our last vision, we raised over $100,000 to give away to Asylum Seeker Centre, to Mission Overseas, to Open Doors, to the Edwards over in Italy. We gave all that away. And I think in right proportion. But this, room, this building is a, a tool for ministry and it needs a little bit of help. And so we'd love you to think about that as we think about the Onward Fund. And the last one is this, the Burwood, the new campus. Cedric and Jenny have moved down from Newcastle and have moved to the hustle and bustle of Sydney and have laid all this aside to start a new gospel work. Jacob and Sarah are heading over there as well. And all of them are laying their lives on the line just like we did when we kicked this church off just almost six years ago. And so we would love, in the same way that David does for Solomon, to put them on as good footing as possible for this next phase in their life. And so again, we'd love you to be thinking and praying about all this. So we started today by looking at the idea of impulse buying. Impulse buying is one that circumvents reflective thinking. I want a thing, I get a thing. Stewardship, the kind of stewardship we see in 1 Chronicles 29 is the exact opposite. It is thoughtful, deliberate, prayerful, considered investment. And so we'd love for you to think about these things. We don't want to take any forms today. We don't want any impulse giving. We said we'd take the three weeks as we look at God's word on stewardship to think and to pray about these things and to think and reflect generally on your habits of stewardship just broadly. These are over and above our regular giving. And so if the next step for you is just regular giving for, for advancing the gospel, for seeing poverty and misery alleviated, for seeing the church advance going forward, then I'd say start on that first. Or if there is margin as you think about your finances to give to see the church go onward, we would love to do that. And then to get together next week as we farewell the team and to celebrate them in a small way. It's not going to be quite as lavish as Israel. I don't know if anyone out there has a thousand bulls to sacrifice. There would be a few issues with that. Um, Not the least of which are are sort of animal rights ones. But anyway, it was a long time ago. But we would love to do that and to celebrate knowing that the truth that was true then is true now. That God is sovereign over all. And we are stewards. So let's pray that God would do a mighty work in our hearts. God, we praise you that you are Lord of all and that to live under your yoke is light and good and your burden is easy. We thank you that you have done everything to make a way back to you. That the biggest problem in the world that money cannot solve is the problem of sin and death and you've solved it in Jesus. You've made a way back to you freely and generously. And Father, we just pray that you'd give us the same heart and mind You would fulfill the prayer of David by keeping these thoughts and purposes in the hearts of your people forever. That we would see what it means to be a steward and embrace it joyfully. And that we would do this out of sheer gospel joy, not out of compulsion, not out of guilt, not out of being forced into things, but knowing that you are a good and lavish and gracious God. And Father, we pray all of these things for the glory of your name. Amen.